You'll come with me to 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings chapter 18. Now here we have Hezekiah. He becomes king at 25 years of age. It says he begins to reign and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. But we notice that it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. Verse 4 being very significant. This distinguishing himself from other people that did what was right. But he went so far as to remove the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he even broke the pieces, the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people had began to make offerings to it, perverting what God had done in times past with it says he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Now, when we read it in such a concise manner, it sounds wonderful. It is wonderful. But we forget that it's very challenging to live the life of King Hezekiah and to do what King Hezekiah did. But if we'll come into a little bit later in that chapter, we get a glimpse into what it would mean to defy the king of Assyria. And to trust in the Lord God. For we see at verse 13, it begins talking about the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against him. And at first it would seem that Hezekiah had some fear. For he was willing to pay a Sennacherib. But then as we come down, it says, verse 17, And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan. So at first in history, they thought that this was a specific man, but they came to learn later that this is the chief general. So when this man comes, in my mind, he's like the killer. He's the chief, chief general of the greatest armies on the face of this earth, according to the flesh. But it's not just him that comes. It's the Rapsurus, who is another government official, and then the Rabshakeh which Isaiah himself talks about his blasphemous words. So it's almost like the tartan, the killer comes. The rabshakeh, the blasphemer comes. And what do they bring with them but a large army? And that's why I put the visual. Because there's no telling how many thousands and thousands of people were in that army. And here, before Hezekiah's messenger, you have the three carrying their weight and carrying the weight and the authority and the power of the Assyrian king with them. And not only that, but they speak in the language of the Hebrews so that the men along the wall can hear what they have to say. And of course, they go on to blaspheme God. They try to make Hezekiah feel insecure about his position and how his destruction is inevitable. So of course, Hezekiah has a choice to make. Is he going to trust in the Lord God or is he going to buy into the lies that the three, particularly the blasphemer, puts into his ear? And that was not easy. 
He had the reassurance of the prophet Isaiah, but ultimately he had to make a decision. He could have, as the blasphemer spoke of, tried to trust in Egypt, but ultimately Hezekiah trusted in God. And as we know, God delivered. Even thinking about the amazing destruction of the 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a of the angel through the battlefield. And they wake up and they see the destruction of their people, not understanding what happened. Hezekiah trusted in God. It's a great thing, but it's not always easy. And sometimes in the world today, it can feel like we have great forces that stand against us. And to stand up for the Lord, and to be steadfast like Hezekiah, to go against the societal norms, to go against the majority, can be very intimidating and very difficult. For us, of course, it's being able to confess the Lord daily in our minds and our hearts and then in our speech and our actions, it's manifesting. It sounds wonderful, it is wonderful, but it's not always easy. And so I begin our scripture this morning in Exodus 12. Because if we can see a few things and bring them together, we can be like King Hezekiah. We can walk in the ways of King Hezekiah, in the ways of King David. We can be faithful no matter what opposition comes up against us. No matter what our adversary, Satan, would try to scheme to take us down. The Passover lamb is our why. That's the title of the lesson this morning. And you'll come to understand it better as we work our way there. But I want to spend just a moment, brief moment, thinking about the impact of the why before we look into some of the, the details of Exodus 12. And that's because someone, a human being in this life, that's able to live a purpose-driven life, someone like a Hezekiah that can move away from what's common, away from human nature, away from the majorities, away from mediocrity, away from the, the fears and the doubts of this life, even away from the naysayers, those who would speak lies over and over and over again and do such things and live according to their purpose. Their why is critical. The why is what compels them daily. And so I want to think just briefly about the impact of the why and then put our minds to certain things in Exodus 12 and then we'll come back around to the why. But I was recently reading an essay written by Dante Hightower. You wouldn't think you'd read an essay written by Hightower, but it's from the Players' Tribune. And he spoke of the time that he's in the locker room. This is the New England Patriots playing the Atlanta Falcons and the Patriots are down 21-3 at half. And he says that in the locker room, there were some guys that were quiet and some guys were doing the rah-rah stuff. Quote, I sat there and for some reason thought, man, I don't even have a son yet. But one day, he's going to watch the tape of this game and he's going to know one thing for sure. His dad never quit. That's a man that understands is why. Now we're just talking about a game, but Hightower went back out there and he did what wasn't common. 
he played with a level of energy that's not common in that type of circumstance. And he ended up making the play that was the catalyst to turn things around. And ultimately, we know the Patriots, they won the game. So we think in life, there's sometimes, even us, sometimes we'll be quiet. Sometimes people will be quiet. Sometimes we'll be loud. Sometimes people will be loud. But it's not those that are able to routinely, consistently operate outside the majority, operate outside of mediocrity, operate and do things that are not common to man. It's the person who in their mind, their heart, deep in their soul, they know their why. And every day, no matter what the obstacles are, it's the why that compels them. It's the why that's driving them. Even when others don't understand, even if they're in their own family and they don't understand, the why can get them to do the things they need to do. So for us, that's to, to be faithful, to serve the Lord God faithfully each and every day seeking to be his servants when we know that many will not understand and we know that we will have to walk in a way that is going to be challenging. We will have to do things that are challenging. But when we understand our why and it's ingrained on our minds and our hearts and deep into our soul, we can do it. We can be just like a King Hezekiah. And that's our goal. So in looking at Exodus chapter 12, we're reminded of, of course, the sacrificial lamb. We see the shared partaking of the Passover. We're reminded and we see the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses. We see the warning that they are not to eat anything that is leavened, and God warned them twice. He understands us. We also see in the institution of the Passover meal that no uncircumcised person was allowed to eat the Passover meal. We see the response of the people upon the instructions, how they bow their heads and they worship God. And then we see at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And we see the plundering of the Egyptians. And we even see that they left, the Israelites left Egypt with a mixed multitude, meaning some of the Egyptians now believed in the Lord God, and they were going to put their lot with him. So in thinking about these things, there's certain applications that we must make, and it draws us back to our why. The first of these things, I'm not sure why this is working, but Blake's got me. If you'll click it, Blake. The first is that there is not an exodus without the Passover. There's an important order here, and you can see it on the screen. Lambs must be slain. Blood placed on the doorpost and the lintel of the houses. Then the exodus occurs. God teaches this here, but he also teaches this in, in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it reads, quote, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In Hebrews chapter 2, Verses 14 and 15, it says, quote, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We were subject to lifelong slavery that Jesus destroyed through his death. In Paul's writing to the Romans, he used this language multiple times when he said that we are, quote, set free, end quote. We know that John calls Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, that he is, quote, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul calls Jesus the our Passover. Jesus is our Passover. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Peter says that Jesus is the, quote, lamb without blemish or defect. And the Hebrew writer coming back into chapter 9, verse 14, he says Jesus offered himself unblemished to God. First, there's not an exodus. There is not deliverance from slavery without the Passover. Point number two, Blake. Second, judgment belongs on all. The blood is the only reason God passes by and withholds judgment. If you put your eyes on verse 13 of Exodus 12, God's just not going to just merely pass over Israel. It indicates that God will see the blood and thus pass over the houses of Israel and strike down only the Egyptians. He saw the blood. He had to see the blood in order to pass over. Now in the New Testament, we see this, but probably most clearly in Romans chapter 3. Come with me to Romans chapter 3. And let's try to digest these words. In Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21, Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We, of course, deserve the wrath of God in judgment, but it's withheld because of the sacrifice of Jesus. We even think about him explaining the divine forbearance that allowed him to pass over sins previously committed. Well, it's like, well, how so? But the basis by which he could do that, and even the present sins, is the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. That's the only way that he can pass over. God had to see the blood and then he could pass over. Jesus had to give himself by his blood and only by his blood can God pass over. But if we think even a little bit more intently, what we see here is a great picture of God's love. In that he does not want us to receive the judgment that we deserve. Therefore, God put forward the appropriate sacrifice. We don't. We can't. 
but God loves us. He put forward the appropriate sacrifice. And because of what he did, he no longer needs to judge us once we've come into contact and have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the picture of the Passover as well as the new covenant relationship that we can have with God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now the third point, Blake, comes to the Lord's Supper and the fact that it is the culmination of the Passover. The significance of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper on the night of the Passover cannot be lost on us. The gospel according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke all note that it's the first day of the unleavened bread feast, which was of course set up for the Passover. So like in Luke chapter 22, verse 7, it says, quote, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Had to be sacrificed. So Jesus dies the day when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Obviously, Jesus is the Passover lamb. But even think into John 18, when you have Barabbas and Jesus and the crowd and they're all shouting, but it had to happen that way. Barabbas is the criminal. He's blemished. And so they don't choose him. Jesus offers up himself. He is the perfect lamb. And the lamb had to be slain. It's reenacting the Passover. Jesus, of course, was chosen. Jesus was slain. He is the perfect sacrifice. Then we come to 1 Corinthians 11. And we think about what Paul talks about as far as the bread, obviously representing Jesus' body, his sacrifice. And we remember that the lamb was slain for us. The cup representing Jesus' blood, the blood of the covenant. Jesus says, my blood of the covenant in Matthew chapter 26, when he's instituting the Lord's Supper among his disciples, my blood of the covenant and remembering that there's no forgiveness of sins without the blood. There's no enacting of a new covenant without the shedding of blood. The Lord's Supper and we remember the freedom that we have, the exodus from sin, all because the lamb was slain and the enacting of a new covenant, the new covenant where Jesus is the mediator. The Lord's Supper is the culmination of the Passover. Now, fourth, Blake, being set free from slavery means we belong to God. So if you come back to Exodus 13 and you look at those first two, two verses after what's transpired, we see that there's implications or that this becomes necessary and God instructs Moses. says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. The firstborn now belongs to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 19, we see this. It says, quote, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Peter chapter 1. 17 through 23, just a summation here. But as Peter writes, he's giving a direct reference back to an event that happened at Mount Sinai where we see the people and we see Moses putting blood on the altar, then reading the law to the people and then sprinkling the blood on the people. 
sealing the covenant between the people and God, and that changes everything. And if you go in there and just read the details prior and the chapters prior and then the events after, you see that it changes everything. So as Peter writes, we are to purify our souls by obedience. After the reading of the law, the people said before God and Moses and the elders and Joshua's assistant that they would be obedient. And Peter writes, we are to purify our souls by obedience because we were ransomed with the blood of Christ. So one, we were dead because of our sins. Two, we were set free by his blood. But three, he bought us. And we now belong to God. We are not our own. He bought us. So glorify God in our bodies. Glorify God in our gifts and our abilities. Glorify God in this life. Because we are not our own. We belong to God. But fifth and finally, which will, of course, help us come right back around to our why. This salvation was a shared experience. Blake, if you'll bring up the next slide for me. Each individual did not eat the Passover meal to themselves. The household, come back one, the household gathered, and if there was too much lamb, then another household was to join. So it was a, a community event that all of Israel did together. It was a shared event. It was something that they all had in common. Now, if we go into the New Testament, we see a lot of passages where we see this kind of corporate sense. But we'll use Titus chapter 3 as our example. So in Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 4, listen to the corporate sense of the way that this is talked about. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God saved us, not just me. Now, it would be, of course, a terrible thing if we tried to eliminate this community concept in regard to salvation, we're a family. We have the most important thing in common, having been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and our joint participation each and every week in this life. We are family. But what's interesting, though we see this corporate nature, it's extremely personal. Exodus chapter 13, verse 8, we can't let these words not strike us. It says, verse 8 of chapter 13, you shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It is what the Lord did for me. So we see the corporate sense of things, but it's also extremely personal. What God has done for us, for me. So every day as we carry our cross, I must carry my cross. You must carry your cross. It's a very personal thing. Every day that we would reflect on the freedom of Christ, the freedom that we have in Christ, we each must do that. It is a very personal thing. So yes, Jesus, of course, offered himself for all. But it's equally true that Jesus offered himself for me. For you, 
It's a very personal thing. Jesus died for me to be able to say that and let that strike my heart. Jesus died for me. It's a very personal thing. And it's also our why. This is my why. Why are you so different? This is my why. And thinking back to the teachings of Jesus, why are you meek? This is my why. Why do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Why are you merciful? Why are you pure in heart when everybody around you is living in abominable ways and praising evil as though it's good? Why are you pure in heart? This is my why. Jesus died for me. It's very personal. Why are you a peacemaker? Right? Why do you strive so diligently to be light when everybody else would just soon be darkness and to live in the flesh? Why do you try to walk by the Spirit? This is my why. Why do you give the one who begs of you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you? Why do you go above and beyond what is asked or expected of you? Why do you show love to your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Why are you so adamant to examine yourself before you judge others? Why do you give so freely, pray so diligently, and why do you fast? Who fasts and doesn't post it on social media, right? Who does that? Why? Why are you so concerned with spiritual things? Why are you not so concerned with storing up earthly gain and treasures and accomplishments and things of this life? Why? This is my why. This is your why. Jesus died for me. He died for you. We want to be King Hezekiah. We know it's not easy. But when the the world seemingly is standing at our doorstep and, and that army, whatever that army might be, The majority saying one thing, the lies, the pressure, intimidating us, whether it's doubt and fear that would come from the evil one, whatever it may be, but it's pressing down upon us, we must remember. We will remember. We will remember Jesus and his path to the cross. You know he chose that path. He had control. We sang the 10,000 angels. We know what he could have done. I mean, even when he was being tempted by Satan, Satan would say, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and you don't have to suffer. You don't have to walk that path. But Jesus didn't take the easy way. He wanted to do the will of his father and it was not easy. But he understood that God's way is the way certainly the best way and we too can do the same thing when those things are are surmounted against us when things are challenging we can see the wisdom in doing things God's way but we have to remember we have to remember our why we have to put our minds and our hearts upon our Savior Jesus Christ and with him in mind We can walk in the ways of God. We can be faithful just like Hezekiah, just like King David. And we can live for that glory that is everlasting, 
that's impenetrable by the words or the works of men. That glory is an everlasting glory, and it's been promised to us. But can we put our mind on the proper things so that at the right time, we get to inherit that glory? Now, I take you back to some of the words from Exodus 12. It said, remember, no uncircumcised person shall eat of the Passover meal. Blake, if you'll show us the next couple pictures. We must be circumcised. Now, it's a circumcision made without hands by Jesus Christ. Baptism. Listen to the words of Paul written to the Christians at Colossae. Chapter 2, verse 11. In Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The lamb has been slain, the new covenant enacted by the shedding of Jesus' blood. If there be sinner among us that has not dealt with their sin, throw off your shackles. Throw off your bondage. The one who can set you free is ready. But you must be willing to obey him so that he can sprinkle you in his blood. You have to be willing to start your journey in the water. If you want discipleship of Jesus Christ, you want to follow Jesus, the journey begins in the water. You must be baptized today. And in that, you will reenact the death of Christ. And just as he was raised, you will be raised from your watery grave today to walk in newness of life. Why is thou tarry? Please come as we stand and sing.